Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thank you for listening to Creative Control, a listener-funded podcast. If you would like to help and support Creative Control and keep this podcast going, please visit patreon.com slash creative control and make a monthly flexible donation today. Terry Fallis is an award-winning novelist based in Toronto, Ontario. The author of seven highly acclaimed comedic and satiric books, his latest is called Albatross and tells the surreal story of a young man whose physical proportions make him the best golfer in the world, even though he's really an aspiring writer who has no interest in golf whatsoever. Published in August of 2019 by McClelland and Stewart, Albatross brings Fallis to events like the Eden Mills Writers Festival this September, among other literary gatherings, and he and I recently met in Toronto for a talk about his trajectory as a political operative, media consultant, and author, and how such things inform his works, including the heartfelt and action-packed Albatross. With the support of listeners like you who subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creativecontrol, plus in-kind support from CFRU 93.3 FM, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, this is the 490th episode of Creative Control, featuring the very talented Terry Fallis with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Terry. How are you? Hi, Vish. Nice to be where? Wait, I, I was going to say it's nice to be here, but where, where are, are we? we? Where are you? You invited me to Toronto. I'm here to meet with you, but where are we exactly? We are in my day job office uh, at the corner of Young and St. Clair. Wow, that's a lovely view here. What what is it you do in your day job office? I still work in the communications consulting agency that I co-founded 23 years ago. 
Oh, congratulations! Twenty-three years ago. What do you do here exactly? What does that mean? Well, we're a we're a social media digital communications agency, so we do everything from help organizations understand the emerging world of social and digital media. We may shoot some video, we may build uh, a website, and we also are into digital public engagement. We've built a digital public engagement platform that organizations can use to consult with various audiences and share information and all sorts of things like that. That sounds interesting. It is. You're still, 23 years, you're still into it. Still into it, yes. Uh, <laughs> writing novels is uh, difficult to earn a living in this country, writing novels alone. Right. How many novels have you written now? This is number seven. Number seven. Okay. So you've had to keep a day job, even though you're one of our more, It's to me, you, you're one of our more celebrated. Oh, uh, I was well, going to say successful, but then you just underplayed it by saying, <laughs> well, I got to keep a day job. But you, you are pretty successful. Well, that's that's good of you to say. I I, I love it that it isn't really uh, – the remunerative success <laughs> is, is less important to me than just uh, – uh, being able to write and having a few people read them and, and say they enjoy them. So I'm uh, I'm very happy. But well, one day, one one day, maybe I'll be a full-time writer. But there aren't many of us in Canada who can do that. So do the two things intersect in any way? Does one, does your job inform your writing? Does your writing inform your job? I think it does. I think it does. Occasionally, uh, my experience uh, and perhaps expertise uh, from my day job seeps into the background of my novels. I mean, social media often plays a role in, in some of my novels, and it's really out of laziness that I can do that because uh, I don't love doing the research for novels, so I tend to plumb the depths of my own experiences uh, and, and, and knowledge such as it is, and they play out in my novels often. Okay, so you have... Your latest novel is Albatross. I'm staring at a copy. Uh, yes, hot off the presses. Hot it's off not the press. a, not in stores yet, but it's this, the fr- this is the only copy I have. It just I got it yesterday. Congratulations, first Thank of you. all. I mean, this is a uh, you know I talked to lots of musicians. I talked to lots of novelists and comedians. Everyone's putting a lot of work into the stuff that we consume. But this novel business always blows my mind. I mean, how, let's <laughs> just how many years did you spend writing this book? Did it take a while? It was about uh, I would say eight. 18 months? A year and a half. Yeah, about that. So you're spending a year and a half writing this thing. You say you plumb the depths of your own knowledge. This is a very interesting meditation on celebrity and, you know, what we really want out of life, I think. And, right. And and it's based around golf, of all things. Of all things. Where does this... Did you plumb the depths of your own? <laughs> the As I always do. <laughs> and I, I have played golf for... Uh, a good part of my life. I, I don't play it often, but I've played it since I was 12 years old. And I 12 years old? You've been playing a yes, while. that okay. long. So I took it in grade eight. Boys golf was one of the options. Uh, we could take boys cooking. I did that and boys golf okay. were the two options I took in, in grade eight. And I was using my grandmother's old clubs. There, I think they were wooden shafted. That's how old they were. And I took a liking to the game. And I, I don't get to play very often, but, uh, you know, a handful of times a year I play. But when you played a lot in your earlier earlier part of your life, your swing is kind of there. Yes, yes. And uh, so I can still only play a few times a year and uh, and not embarrass myself too badly. 
Okay, well, you know, there are going to be people listening to this who haven't yet dug into the book. We've talked about the golf. Can you summarize this book for people if you're to tell people you know just, well, just give it a little give us a little synopsis of the, of the sure book. It, it it's hard to to do it i haven't got the 30 second elevator pitch i need to work on that the book's not even out yet so i need to plan that i know a cons- however i know a consultancy firm that might be able to help you <laughs> exactly, actually <laughs> exactly um I, I think of it as a novel that explores the difference between success and happiness fulfillment yeah and sometime and, and sort of the confusion that we often feel when wrestling with those two parts of our lives and i as i as i am wont to do i've chosen a particularly outlandish uh sort of idea to examine that or storyline to examine that idea and in the case of this novel the narrator when the novel opens he's a 17-year-old starting his final year in high school. And he discovers, courtesy of his uh, phys ed teacher, that he has a body that is absolutely perfectly proportioned for golf, according to the theory of an obscure Swedish kinesiologist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And not to get too deeply into the kinesiology weeds on it, he has utterly and literally no agency over his success in the game of golf. The boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is only due to the length of his arms and his legs and the width of his torso and the way his natural swing works just because his body is so perfectly proportioned. And in fact, uh, it is so perfect and so dependent on his natural makeup that practice makes him worse because practice is not natural at all this is the donald trump school of thought about expending (laughs) you know we got to save our energy we don't expend it if we expend all our energy we won't have anything left (laughs) and then we won't be able to play golf that's right which is near and dear to his heart by the way as well exactly okay so this is a it is an outlandish almost fantastical story though i hope it is explained in a way that at least approaches plausibility for the reader it does on some level it does is (laughs) this based on any (laughs) is it based on any kinesiology like a a theory of some kind or you just made this up i made it up uh it's what we do as novelists we just cook things up although it's an idea that i've had for a long time that as I look around at, at all of the people I know and just people I don't know walking on the street, you look at them and you think, that person's probably got a body that would work for curling or swimming. No one thinks this, Terry. You're the <laughs> only not. one thinking I'm this. I'm the only one. It may be. And the problem is, I th- if that's true, the tragedy is that many of us never discover the sport right. that we are could could be a world champion in because we just never get a chance to try high lie or something it's like a fascinating that. theory an idea yes. that you've conjured that maybe we're just preordained to be great right. at some sort of physical sport right. that duality between fulfillment and success we were just talking about your duality mm. as a writer uh and as someone who works in this office that we're in yes your protagonist is an aspiring writer he is. He and his lady friend at 17 uh, <laughs> both uh, are wannabe writers, and uh, that's what he really wants to do. But then this thing happens where he's found out to be a great golfer. Have you seen Happy Gilmore? Have you seen that film? Because <laughs> I have, not for a while, but okay, I do remember. I, it occurred, it. Weirdly enough, I was reading Albatross, and then my seven-year-old son 
and I were like, what are we going to watch? I'm like, you know, and he was like, what's Happy Gilmore on Netflix? And I said, well, it's probably not appropriate for you, but let's give it a shot. (laughs) Anyway, then it was a weird thing. Because right. that's another reluctant golfer. Yeah, and you're right. I hadn't thought of that connection. So, but so you're right. what is it about golf that people are either a lot of us write it off as an elitist, you know, right. sport that isn't for everyone. You've got a protagonist here who doesn't want to do it. Makes millions and millions of dollars. His life's changed, but is just so grumpy. Right about golf is. Are you saying something about golf? Sorry, I went on a couple. I wanted to ask about the duality, but then I I got lost <laughs> in the golf. Okay. But yeah, what's going on with golf? First of all, well, uh, I wanted it to be an individual sport because I thought it would be too complicated to make it a you know have him be a, a an outstanding hockey player. Or sure, something. I could have written about hockey because I played hockey longer than I played golf, and I, I still play. Uh, but golf, it just seemed golf was better suited for the inner turmoil that uh, he was going to wrestle with uh, because he you're right he he doesn't like golf he realizes he is the golden goose in a way that is providing him with golden eggs his teacher uh, realizes it too yes yes and he's very fond his teacher by the way also a, a almost actually uh, quite a proficient golfer quite a good golfer she yeah. is yeah. yeah she she's a fun character i i enjoyed uh, writing very her. interesting character yeah yeah I, I i liked her i liked her a lot yeah. um but the irony is he's not nearly as good a writer as he is a golfer and of course in golf he he doesn't need to practice and uh, he's never made a mistake in golf because he's just so perfectly suited for it that he laps up all of the criticism that he gets on the stories that he writes in his creative writing class. Right, right. Uh, and so he takes he takes the advice so genuinely and and in such a welcoming way that everyone else is rather uh, struck by that because writers don't often take criticism exactly uh, as as willingly and gratefully and graciously but he does that's how it's framed in the book yeah. that the the writers he's around are very sensitive and they, they don't want that feedback right meanwhile his alter ego if you will his other life he's just praise is hailed upon him right. i mean at the same time anyway i don't want to give too much about right. the way about the book but i want to get to that duality as you you're someone who works in this office that we're in but you're also a very gifted writer. Is there something going on between this character, who is an aspiring writer and <laughs> and has a day job he doesn't really want to be doing, he wishes he could just be the writer. Do you relate to this character in that way? Well, at the risk of my clients or my colleagues <laughs> hearing this podcast. <laughs> You're um, in charge, so you can't get canned, I don't think, that's right? That's true. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose that's true. Uh, well, I've had a great career as a communications consultant. I have enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, I like to think I've been reasonably successful at it. Uh, However, uh, when I wrote my first novel was the first time it really dawned on me what it was like to love what you're doing. And I thought I loved my day job, and I've had a great career, no regrets, I wouldn't have changed a thing. Right. But when I wrote my first novel, I said, oh, this that's what that feeling is. And that probably was when the seed was planted uh, for this novel. So I suppose... When you started, you when you started writing, you feel like the seed was planted for this, your seventh novel? I, I expect so. Huh. Yeah. I, I don't know. I didn't have the idea then, but I suspect that it was... That's when it started. Right. I mean, this is something we can all relate to. Um, some of us 
particularly this day and age, your hobby uh, can be all-consuming, yes. but not yield great success. And the other things you do uh, that you spend the majority of your day doing to uh, put food on the table, pay the bills, is not as fulfilling as your hobby. Right. So the goal that all of us have is to make the hobby the job. Precisely. Right. And if, uh, if perhaps uh, I was published in other countries or had more movie deals <laughs> or right. something, maybe that would be uh, possible that I could just be a writer full time. But uh, not yet. Okay. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how you made that leap from doing this. Uh, by this, I mean being in this office or wherever you were at the time <laughs> and starting this uh, firm and saying, you know, I have something else t to express. What, what what caused that leap to, to actually try to write a novel? Right. Because that's, I think, I'm sure you get this all the time. How do you, I think public speaking, writing novels, among the things that most people find completely mystifying. <laughs> Mortals, you know, regular people are like, how do, I can't imagine right. having to do those things. How did you make that leap? Well, I think it has its roots in a love of language that, was engendered by my father, I think, more than, than anyone else. He had a great love of language and schooled us in grammar and respect and reverence for the language. And that coupled with a growing interest in fiction, which was rather late coming to me, uh, I didn't really start reading fiction uh, until I was in my mid-20s. Mid what were you reading before that? I was so involved in in politics and uh, that I was re I was reading history and biography and political science and economics, if you can believe it. Uh, can you expand upon that? I, I'm somewhat aware of the fact that you are you were uh, and are you were very immersed in politics. Were. You lived in Ottawa, right? I did for a time. And what did you do there? Uh, I uh, my first job was uh, on the staff of Jean Chrétien for his. 1984 leadership run. I just finished my term as president of the Students' Union at McMaster University, okay. where I got my engineering degree that I've never used in the formal sense since, though I think I use it almost every day in how I view the world. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, but uh, I was fascinated, interested, dedicated to, to politics, and was very active in the student movement. And I threw myself into, into politics. And I, I worked on Parliament Hill uh, for a cabinet minister in the Turner cabinet. Oh, wow. The short-lived Turner cabinet. John Turner we're talking about. Yes. This going back a ways John for Turner, my international audience uh, who might be listening. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. exactly. John right. Turner, who was prime minister for a short period in the summer of 1984. Right. And it was a short Rain because the Brian Mulroney and his conservatives swept to power on September the fourth, I think it was, to uh, 1984. But I stayed with my the minister I was working for was reelected, but of course was then in opposition. So I stayed with him in opposition for a year. And when the David Peterson Liberal government came to power here in Queens Park in 1985, I was invited to come back and and work for the finance minister on his political staff, Bob Nixon. Now, when you say work, you mentioned working for a lot of people there. What, what did you actually do? I was uh, writing speeches. I was doing policy research. I was writing letters to constituents. I was developing questions to use in question period. With an engineering degree. This is where, it, this yes. is where you went. 
Correct. That's fascinating. That is odd, I know. <laughs> but, you know, engineering is a great preparation for, for politics and for many things. It really in, uh, teaches uh, a sense of discipline that is required uh, in everything I've managed to, to get involved in, including writing novels and, and being a consultant. Hmm. Uh, discipline and just getting down to it. Because if you don't get down to your engineering assignment, it's due the next day. Yeah, right, right. There's it's, no there's no choice in the matter. You just do it. Okay, so it's the workflow and management yes. of the workflow that you feel you apply in every day. And sort of a methodological approach to problem solving where you examine an issue, you decide uh, what are the knowns, what are the unknowns, what is actually having influence right. and what is just cosmetic and, and distracting us. Right. And how do you really... What levers do you move to affect the change you want? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, those are all important concepts in consulting when you're developing strategy of and course. that sort of thing. So okay. I, I actually am very happy I have an engineering degree. I think it has helped me, uh, certainly has helped me when I write my novels. I write a no novels the way you would expect an engineer to write novels. I am very much an outliner, a blueprint, a planner. Okay, you're one of these. You're not like uh, someone who just starts and sees where you no, end up. No, I, I am at, at the extreme end of the planning <laughs> spectrum. It <laughs> seems to be working out for you, if I might say. <laughs> so you're in politics, uh, and then what? What happens after? And you've written about this on some level, right? You've written yes. thinly veiled accounts of your... Well, there wasn't so much my experiences. There were certainly... The challenges I had with politics and the problems I thought we, you know, we have in our politics in this country, and those first two novels, *The Best Laid Plans* and *The High Road*, were in a way my love letters to democracy. I was mm -hmm. trying to illuminate a different path we might take in politics. But if I had written a rage-filled nonfiction polemic on my view on the state of politics, nobody would have read it or published it. So I decided to, uh, to cloak my, my thoughts and my angst and my concerns uh, about politics in a funny story and put my thoughts in the minds and mouths of some characters right. people might come to like. Okay. But there is a, you know, to me, there is a mission in those, in those novels, although I think it's quite possible to read it just as a, as a, as a funny story and enjoy it as, as entertainment. Yeah, I think they've been uh, sort of described as kind of political satire. Is yes. that how you would view them? I think of it as satire rather than as comedy. Comedy makes you laugh. Satire makes you laugh, but it ought to make you think uh, And as angry. Well. Sometimes it makes you angry. Sometimes it does. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at some point you start this business? Yeah, I, I went after my life in politics ended in the end of 87. I joined a multinational PR agency called Hill and Knowlton uh, back, it was 1988, I started there. Uh, and I was with them for eight years. And that experience of working in a multinational New York-based uh, PR agency informed my third novel, Up and Down, which is set in a multinational <laughs> PR agency right. headquartered in New York. Okay, so if we really want your biographical details... <laughs> Just read the novels. Read all your novels, and we'll it's, get a glimpse funny. of you. They aren't autobiographical, but they do... Uh, they are set in and deal with, you know, locations and issues and times of my life that, that I certainly know a lot about. Right. So I, I think any writer's goal is to write with 
authenticity and, and authority. And yeah. I find it easiest to do that if I'm writing about you know, things that I already know. Right. So this book, Albatross, does some interesting stuff with... Um, you, we, we were talking earlier about social media, and uh, we live in a very... We live in a time of peak individualism. Mm. You have a character who, you know, would be the envy of any wannabe Instagram star, or YouTube star, you know, fame thrust upon him. Right. And he is rejecting it yes. on some level. And in the book, eventually tries to alter himself so that he gains anonymity. Are you speaking to this? And by the way, as, as I recall, your book kind of leaps through time it kind of ends up we end up in the future at some point don't we yeah uh, yeah yeah so that's right are you saying something about this modern time when with this character who is given this gift of not only a skill but fame and wants nothing in and fact money. <laughs> and money yeah he gets fame and money that's right and and in the end to pursue his true passion uh hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST actually seeks anonymity and actually takes a chance on letting the work he does speak for itself and have nothing to do with him as a personality. Right. That struck me as fascinating because we're such a personality-driven culture now. Right. Are you speaking to that? Well, it was m- I think it's a bit more about, uh, about the nature of celebrity than it is about social media and, and the digital world, although it's hard to separate those two i totally understand that it, uh, it creeps up i, I understand the distinction yeah. you're making but it yeah. does creep up in the book when he um is sort of found out at one point when his anonymity is shattered it's the result of i think a social media post or or, yes. or a news report that yeah. circulates uh, so. tabloid uh, right. paparazzi or <laughs> right yes and so um i i just wanted to get at that a little bit because i found that striking particularly for a young man um who is uh you know, these days, like I say, a lot of us are not me. I'm older, but a lot of younger, <laughs> younger people seem really to put themselves out there, want to make right. something of themselves. This character is conflicted about what he's made of himself, even though he's got the fame, the riches, and yes. whisked around the world and all these things. He is conflicted, and he's conflicted because he feels he is in no way responsible for his fame and 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 wealth and and profile. Uh, that it, he feels like an empty vessel. It, he is bo- it is just his body that has earned right. him this fame. And uh, he would much rather be a struggling, not even mid-list, lower than mid-list writer 
because that's something that came out of his head and out of his hard work. Uh, it's not just something that he can do effortlessly and 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 win every time. Uh, so in a way, he's um, he's embarrassed by his fame, uh, or embarrassed may not be the, quite the right word, but he, he certainly doesn't, he feels guilty about it. He's self-conscious about it, that's for sure, he's yeah. He's self-conscious about yeah. it. Uh, he's guilty that he has all of this, and... You know, he he try he get, does give away quite a bit of his of his money because, and it isn't so much because he cares about those causes, although he does. It's more that he barely feels entitled to the money in the first place. That's a good word to use because there is a lot of entitlement these days. Um, I'm sorry to keep jumping back to like what jump is this? away. Well, what is this saying? I guess I, I'm curious about what this particular character who does seem to have a moral fiber. Yes. and a sense of dignity and pride. Are you making any comment on what's happening right now in terms of the way, um, not only the way, uh, it's horrible to say that young people are a certain way, but I do feel like the media and the way that we're being, if, if I was a young person now, I would feel a bit confused right. about how I'm supposed to behave, what is appropriate, what isn't. What is earned? What is uh, some? Why do I feel entitled about certain things? Because we right. see that a lot too. Yes. So I just wondered if you were making a comment on that. I I think I was. Uh, now that you put it that way, <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when people analyze your book mm -hmm. and they give this big elaborate theory. And they, was that what you were intending? Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> well, I know it's open to interpretation, yes, but, but this is my reading of it. No, and I, I think you're right. And uh, to me, the book is about not chasing after the wrong things, I guess. And if celebrity and fame and power and money uh, are what people are, are looking for, it's possible to, to have that. Right. But you may be a hollow shell <laughs> to get there. So it's, it's, to, it's to look inside yourself and discover... And work at finding out what really fulfills you, what really makes you happy, and then figure out how to integrate that into the life that that you have. What about the 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 long lost love interest here? Mm. You have a you know kind of high school sweethearts yes. being pulled apart as well, and then if all goes well. Uh, they're brought back together on some level. Again, I don't want to spoil anything about the book. <laughs> what were you thinking there in terms of that connection to home? Because, uh, you know, we leave home, we leave our parents, we go make our way in the world, and it's sometimes, if you're unfortunate maybe even, uh, you lose that connection. Yes. But this this protagonist is almost always connected. He, he feels something deep and um, for this, this high woman, school yeah. sweetheart. Yeah. yeah, he does. They, they are very much in love, and then his world, in a way, explodes with this, with golf, and gets the full-ride scholarship to Stanford, where he can study creative writing, which is really why he's going there. Yeah, but, exactly. But he joins the golf team, of course, and tears up the NCAA, and, and he, he started his, his journey. But he he really misses uh, his you know his girlfriend his, mm -hmm. his his first love, and they're so simpatico on so many different uh, levels. So in a way, it may well be I was writing a bit about the the endurance of of love when when it's 
when it's the right yes, love. The, and that's familiar, but I also thought it was striking that they connect, they're, they're connected to each other, but I think they're also connected to a place. Yes. Uh, in their lives and, and geographically as well. That's right. And, yeah. he, of course, he is separated from all of that when he first when he goes to California to, yeah. to study and play golf and then playing on the tour. He's very seldom at home. Yeah. Uh, and that was kind of his his anchor. Uh, he's an only child. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I think when he does come back to Toronto, he is coming home in more ways than, than one. There's a very surprising and pivotal action sequence in this book that I, without giving too much away, can you talk about where that came from? Just this notion of having this character who feels weirdly, he's very successful, but feels kind of rudderless, and he loses ostensibly his anchor yes. in this world that he's entered. And in a very dramatic and strange way, yes. what were you thinking with that one? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question because <laughs> I haven't written very many scenes like that in like that one in my novels, and it may have been me trying to explore different parts of mm-hmm. uh, of storytelling that I hadn't hadn't attempted before. Uh, but I I also think that in all of my novels. There is this thread of, or well, not a thread, but there is there is often sadness and tragedy that is juxtaposed with the comic and the humorous, the antic. Uh, and in a way, I do that because I think that's what our lives are like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it makes for a more meaningful ride for the reader when they're not just above the line, chortling away. Uh, but that they're dipping below the line and and are you know I don't know if they if they'd ever have a lump in their throat, but uh, that would be amazing if someone said to me they'd have a lump in their throat. Uh, it came the the action sequence I'm describing just comes to me anyway out of left field, right? And, and that was that was intention. That was the intention, and it was a shocking event in in the novel, but it was perhaps the shock that Adam the the narrator. Yeah needed right uh, so it was uh, it was difficult to write because I'm not I'm not prone to to those sorts of, uh, of scenes uh, but it was it was fun to to sort of work myself through it uh, and yeah I hope it catches readers by surprise now that we've talked about it, maybe it won't no I think it, I think it will I, we, I, yeah. I don't think we've divulged too much no no we haven't I haven't I, I think it will be uh, yeah it's it's a shock yeah, so it was uh, it, it was an interesting process for me to go through that, but I I wanted something that was significant enough to knock some sense and some gumption in a way and some direction perhaps into our narrator. Knock him out of his complacency a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you speak of Adam and the fact that he is the narrator. You have someone in your book who is an aspiring writer telling us his story Mm. and the whole time i'm like i thought by the end we will have discovered that this was his new book um you know (laughs) what i mean like oh i see yes yeah i was like oh he's the guy that wants to be the a a good writer is telling me his story so and then he would say at the end and this is the book yeah something like that i've done that already (laughs) 
Is that right? I did that in my fourth novel. Okay. I did that. That's it. You have a penchant for the first person narrator to suddenly. I do. Uh, okay. I have. It's may, perhaps fear on my part, but I feel really comfortable in, in writing in the first person. Yeah. It has its limitations, as you know. If you're not in the room at the time, you can't describe anything else that's going on. So sometimes there are some gymnastics that are required to right. share other parts of the story that maybe the narrator doesn't know. And there are some techniques you can you can do with that. But uh, but I, I've always written in the first person. Should I try something else? Probably. <laughs> Uh, just to is every novel in the first person? I, I'm just asking. Is that is right? Every novel, and it's. Hmm. I think it's partly because I my tendency is to write in a voice that is similar to my own voice. Well, you say that you you've said a few times, I think, during our conversation, that you do plumb your own experience yes. for what goes on in your stories. Let's flip that. Do you see these characters as? I know they're fantastical. I know that uh, even for you as the creator, there's some level of escapism in writing them. Sure. Is it sort of like, man, I wish I was like so-and-so. I wish I could do that. Do you have that a little bit once you've created the characters? I probably do. Uh, certainly some of the characters are, are aspirational yes. characters. My, my, my Angus McClintock character in the first two novels, who is the accidental member of parliament, who is right. so honest and committed to his principles and the public interest and he's just this you know he's too good to be true and uh you know i aspire to be in a way like like him and i hope other politicians might yeah, <laughs> might yeah. do that too yeah. so some of them are, are aspirational uh some of them are i mean in my third novel i have a a 71 year old bush pilot lesbian doctor in the frozen lake in BC and she ends up in space and that I've sounds always, like you this sounds exactly like I've you. always wanted to <laughs> I'm a big space nut so mm-hmm. it was not unusual that I would write about that at some point right so the desire or the choice to write about that I think reflects my interest in and perhaps a desire one day that maybe I'll get to go to space. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, they're personal storylines in a way, but they are not autobiographical, if, if you get that distinction. I do. I do get the distinction. But I will say the, the, the only other thing that occurs to me in terms of potential layers in Albatross, I wonder if you're a sportsman. Clearly, clearly you say you've been playing golf since grade eight. Hockey, you've played more than golf. Any other sports, by the way? Uh, are those the main I ones? played competitive badminton. Not for a while now, but I still play with my brother on Monday nights. <laughs> okay, okay. So you're you're a sports guy. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Is there anything going on with Adam within this story uh, that speaks to how we maybe overvalue mm. these athletes? Maybe think they're more special than they are, or maybe they're overcompensated. I wondered about that. Excellent. Uh, very good point. Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, I think so. You say this as a fan and an appreciator of the sports. Absolutely. Uh, and as a writer, and, and writers, particularly writers of novels uh, in Canada, uh, I mean, our very best novelists, uh, for their writing alone, you know, don't come close to uh, the salary that Mitch Marner is going to be paid for his first game next season. Exactly. Right. It's a big problem that I don't understand. I mean, our teachers, our 
professors, our doctors, our scientists, you would think they would be compensated on those levels. Yes. Just for their work that they're doing. It, it, is, uh, it is difficult. And it's, so it's no coincidence that... And our writers, novel. I should say, and our writers. And our writers. <laughs> of course. Well, <laughs> of course. that's why I juxtaposed <laughs> yes. the lowly writer yeah. and the most the wealthiest, best, fam- most famous golfer in the world right. in, in this novel, because that that contrast is just so stark. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a point you were highlighting. I may have been making as strong a point about how writers are, are compensated as I was about how athletes are. It, 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 it comes at, at it from both sides. I it's think. true. I mean, for people who know how uh, literary culture in this, in this country anyway works, and it's probably a similar model elsewhere, this juxtaposition of Adam, the professional golfer, with Adam, the uh, anonymous writer on a very, very small independent publishing, you know, right. in a publishing house, is fascinating. In a I book mean, that isn't flying off the shelves. Exactly, because right. no one knows the writer and right. no one cares. And then, right. anyway, very fascinating. I, I just think there's many levels and layers to this book, and I, I enjoyed oh, I'm so it. Glad. Oh, I'm yeah, glad. They, well, thank I, you. And it does, you know, you mentioned film deals. I end up saying this to writers on the show sometimes. This one feels like it could be something I watch. Like, this feels like it has the elements to be a, you know, it's it's realistic and fantastical enough that you, you could you see could it. You could put it on, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't <laughs> think about that when I'm writing it, but at the end, it occurred to me yeah. as well. I mean, my, I was so lucky. My first novel was a CBC miniseries. Right. And, and the director, uh, the producer, director, asked if I'd ever written screenplays before. I said, no, I wouldn't know how to do that. And he goes, well your novels read kind of like a screenplay. Exactly, exactly. I don't know whether that's the first-person narrative that helps make that feel that way. No, uh, perhaps it's that. I think it's the the details are vivid and the characters come through quickly. Like, I get a sense of them right away. Um, So maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I don't want to... I don't want to overflatter you. Yeah, thank you. But but I enjoy enjoy this book. (laughs) So what's next for you? You mentioned 18 months spent on Albatross. Do you have something else brewing at this point or is it too early i do uh i do have something else brewing uh it's it's nowhere near uh the writing stage uh or even the outlining stage i'm in the plotting mapping out stage but it's uh it's quite possible that we may see a return of uh angus mcclintock from my first two novels okay uh it's a question i'm asked at every book talk I have ever given in the last 10 years. People is, like is Angus se- coming back? People like the character, but people also like the continuity of a series. Yes, although it, it, it's, it'll be a little bit different. He will be a politician, but uh, he'll be a cabinet minister, but it's not about politics. It's about, uh, you know, uh, sort of a international, think of it as an international thriller of oh. sorts. That he stumble, he and his sidekick stumble into. Interesting. Okay. And so so I'm, a comic thriller may be what I'm trying next. Okay. So All we'll right. we'll see how it goes. So uh, where can people learn more about that? Thank you for that. That was fascinating. I, most times, uh, particularly with the writers, no one talks about what they're well, writing. Like I, I got a thing, but I'm yes. thing, I don't know if I, it's right. there yeah, yeah. yet. I don't want to talk about it yet. You were like, ah, you started that way, and then you're like, actually, uh. <laughs> well, it is in its nascent form right now, so I, yes. I'm hoping it will emerge the way I've described it, right. but we'll see. Okay. We'll see. No, that's excellent. Thank you for that. <clears throat> where can people go to learn uh, on the on the internet, of course? Where can they yes. go to learn more about uh, Albatross and uh, about you? I have a website, 
uh, terryfallis.com. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. You can, if you search me up there, you'll find me Terry Fallis author. I think is what it is on Facebook. I have two Facebook pages. Yeah. One for, but uh, and yeah, looking forward to Albatross hitting bookshelves. And you're going to be doing uh, uh, like festivals and whatnot. Yes. Yeah. I know I'm, you're coming to the Eden Mills Writers Festival. I am. Is that the plan? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. One of my favorites. Yeah. You've been there before. Yeah, Any others? Are you going to travel? I'm out to the Sunshine Coast uh, Writers Festival in August. I'm at the Ottawa Writers Festival. I am. Uh, there are several other festivals. I'm just oh Calgary Word Fest. I'm going to and uh, several others. So yeah, I'm looking forward to. It. I know these are, are are happenings. I know people. Uh, you you obviously partake in these things. Do you have like a, a pros and cons about this kind of experience, the writers festivals? I'm just curious. I just wonder if because uh, I always I watch uh, writers reading and I I don't know why. I, I can't imagine myself doing... I can imagine right. myself doing all sorts of things. I can right. imagine myself interviewing that writer on stage and being completely comfortable. But there's just something about reading it. I wonder what it's like. I, I wonder what that experience must be like. Well, for me, there are only, only pros. I actually really enjoy the festivals. I know some writers... Uh, you know, perhaps they are writers because they don't necessarily like to be in speaking in public. And, speaking in public, right, it's right. not perhaps a natural thing for them. But for me, it's a reward for having sequestered myself for eighteen months right. and churned out this book. Then I can go and talk about it and meet people. And and, and is the writers' community as closely knit as you would like it to be? It, it is to me. Yeah. I, I've come to know so many wonderful writers who I have watched from afar and read and collected and revered over the years. And I get to be in the author's lounge with them yeah. and talk to them. And, yeah. and it's really one of the few times writers get a chance to get together because when else, when else do they get together? Exactly, yeah. Uh, okay, okay. So I, I actually quite enjoy it and the chance to meet readers who have actually read your book. I mean, that is, uh, that is very rewarding. Absolutely. Particularly if they've enjoyed the book. <laughs> if they haven't, it's less rewarding. But, uh, but I actually quite like it. And uh, I, I think it's also, in a way... It's part of being a writer in this country if you want to sell enough books to write another one. Right. Is that you can't simply put it on the shelf in your local independent bookstore and wait for the royalty check to arrive because there will be no royalty check if that's how it how it unfolds. Right. Um, you got to go on tour. It's like, you a, have it's like to, a band who has to go on tour and sell the In record. a way it yeah. is. Yeah. And then you sell enough. And you're also building a constituency out yeah. there in yeah. places that you don't travel very often and you build up pockets of support you hope and that when your next book comes out they will say oh he came to my book club yeah exactly so right. i'm going to pick that one up right right so right. i think it is part of a of a continuum of the, the of the writer's life that uh i actually enjoy all parts of it lots of writers don't enjoy all parts of it mm. some writers don't enjoy the writing part even <laughs> uh, but i i really uh, uh I really enjoy almost every aspect no, of, it's of great. the life. It's great to I hear. I feel very lucky. I appreciate that. Well, Terry, you're, I, if I might say, you're something of a renaissance man. As far as I'm <laughs> concerned, you do it all. And I thank you for this time and for being on the show. And best of luck with Albatross and everything else going forward. Vish, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All my gratitude to Terry Fallis for being on this, the 490th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and available on all iOS and Android platforms and everything you use to access podcasts and even other media. Spotify, YouTube, Audio Boom, Creative Control is there. 
If you can't find an episode that you're looking for that you've heard about, for some reason it's not on any of those things, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. Everything you need to know is there. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me at vishkana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time, around the world at cfru.ca, or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol to make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. It is a very modest Patreon, and we could use more donations. So please, patreon.com slash creativecontrol if you enjoy this show. Thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my old friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some of his music on this program. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode and subscribing to the podcast if that's what you're going to do or do already. And spreading the word about the show to your friends, your family, people who might be interested in it. That always helps. So thank you for that. I must leave you. I will talk to you soon. Bye for now. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.